God, we love you, and we are just so thankful uh, to be able to study your word together here uh, this morning. Lord, there are so many needs represented in this room, so many burdens, uh, Lord, so many things people are walking through. Um, Lord, I do not know all of those things, but you do. And Lord, we trust that uh, through your word this morning that you will provide exactly what we need. Lord, you promise in your word that your, uh, your word will not return void, but it will accomplish its purpose. So God, we ask that that would occur here this morning in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all need uh, reminders. Uh, life is busy. Our to-do lists are full. And let's face it, we tend to be very forgetful people. We tend to forget even important things in our lives, like birthdays and uh, anniversaries and what time to, to pick up the kids. And so there are different mechanisms, different ways uh, to remind ourselves. I'm sure that you've learned. I'm sure that you've explored. You could go the old-fashioned route, the old school of just pen and paper, or you write down things that you want to, uh, to remember, things that you want to kind of remind yourself about, whether that's when to take out the trash or things that you want to accomplish. You can write that on sticky notes or three by five cards. Uh, Pastor Tim, this is one thing that when you work in an open office uh, concept, you, you see your coworkers, and this is what Pastor Tim uses, kind of this old school uh, type of, of mechanism. have to remind him that he lives in 2022 uh, these days, but uh, that's one approach. Another approach is to use kind of your calendar, and you see visually uh, the days, and you can put important things on those days, like birthdays and anniversaries and things that you want to accomplish, right? More of a visual uh, way of doing that. Uh, or you can embrace technology because there is an app on your smartphone called the Reminders app. This is something I use every day uh, where you can plug in things and, and you can even um, you know, specify what time and what day you want to be reminded of. And it's really useful, really helpful. There's even a, a, an app called the, the Carrot app that has a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of a personality, some snarkiness uh, in the reminder app. It will insult you if you forget uh, something that you wanted to be reminded of. So if you need some extra motivation, you can use um, that app as well. But th the point is we all need reminders. The Bible knows this. Peter knows this. And it's exactly why Peter, as he's thinking about how do I close out this letter, this really important letter that, by the way, is his last one because he's about to die. He's only got a few months left. He's in prison and he knows his time is short. And so the way that he closes out this letter is by giving four reminders. Nothing new is in these last couple of verses that he hasn't really already said, but he provides these four truths, these four reminders uh, for us here as he closes out Second Peter. And these are all in the form of commands here. So we're going to walk through each of these, and this will be kind of even a great summary of uh, the whole letter. So here's the first one to keep in mind. Uh, Peter exhorts us to prioritize godliness above all. If you look at verse 14 with me, it's obvious here that Peter is trying to connect all that he has said with these important reminders as he closes out this letter. You, you can see this in verse 14. The word therefore there is a connecting word. You basically can see that, interpret that because of what I've just said. Uh, but even the phrase there after that, since you are waiting for these, what's these referring to? Well, it's referring to what he just said. Peter is essentially saying, because Jesus will return and he will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth and, and, and the day of judgment, let me fully unpack for you and explain how you ought to be living 
as you wait for Jesus's return. That's what he's saying here as he starts to land the plane with this letter. We'll notice the first command here is to be diligent. Be diligent towards what? Specifically, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, this is clever phrasing uh, by Peter because the word there found in verse 14 is the exact same Greek word for exposed in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me for a moment. The last phrase there, it says, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Same Greek word for the word for, uh, for found in verse 14. Notice the connection. Notice what Peter is saying here. He is saying there is coming a day in which every single one of us will be completely and utterly exposed before God Almighty. Everything laid bare. Everything will be before the Lord. You will be found out in every sense of that word. Nothing will be hidden. Of course, he's referring to the day of judgment. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a terrifying thought to be standing before God where he will find you out. You will be exposed, nothing hidden. He sees all and knows all. And so because of that, Peter wants your life to be without spot, blemish, and at peace. Now at peace here is, is not the, the way that we typically use peace. This is not some form of emotional tranquility. This word is getting at the idea of an objective condition before God that's based on being reconciled with God, that you are now at peace with God. This should remind us of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this peace here, if you're looking at that verse up there, this peace is experienced through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important because that's telling us that in order to have this peace that Peter wants us to have, that we have to understand Jesus did something on our behalf in order to make peace possible. What did Jesus do for us? Well, Jesus died in our place. He took our penalty. He took our, our consequences for us because of our sin. That 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross for us sinners. He did all that and, and rose from the dead so that for those who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who say, I can't earn salvation on my own. I can't earn it or work for it by my good works. I must trust in Jesus. What that means is that you, you now have all of the benefits that Jesus has, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, all of his right standing before God. You're no longer guilty. And so you're no longer at war with God. You now have peace with God for those who believe. And Peter wants us to be diligent to be at that kind of peace. But not only that, he wants us to be diligent to ensure that we are found before God without spot or blemish. Now, this means to be uh, found blameless. It has the, uh, the idea of purity. I was thinking about this phrasing, and my mind automatically went to water filters, 
and how everybody has like a water filter at home. Nobody wants to drink water from the earth with all the sediment and impurities and, and all of the dirt. And, and it's interesting when you think about what a water filter does. In fact, those of you who went on the, the vision trip with Filters of Hope, you saw that every day as you're sharing the gospel and using that as an illustration. The water filter sifts out all of the, the dirt and the sediment and even bacteria or all of the, the dirtiness to make the water usable and drinkable. It goes from unusable to now usable. That's the idea here that Peter is calling us to as it relates to our spiritual and moral condition, that because we have peace with God through Jesus, because we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, Peter is exhorting us, be diligent in the purification process in your lives morally from the sin that's in this world. Sift it out. Make sure that you're usable spiritually. So this, this call for diligence has an aim. Its aim is toward godliness. And that's been a huge theme throughout 2 Peter. We've seen this in almost every passage. We've seen this phrase, be diligent, make every effort. We saw in chapter 1, verse 5. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and so on. All that, the long list there. Chapter 1, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This is a huge theme. Be diligent, make every effort. That means that you are prioritizing it. You're not just waiting for godliness to magically occur in your life. You're going after it. You're getting after your spiritual development, this process of sanctification, of looking more and more like Jesus. So you're using your energy, you're using your time, you're using your resources, you're even sacrificing so that you can look more like Jesus and be diligent in your pursuit of godliness. It seems like throughout this letter, Peter is, is challenging us to, to, to conduct a self-assessment of your energy and effort distribution. Like what does that look like in your life of where you invest your energy and your effort and your time. Because wherever that goes, that reveals what you are prioritizing. And Peter is calling us to make your number one priority, your number one investment of your time and your energy and your effort toward godliness. And so as we get to the end of this letter, you have to ask yourself the question, is godliness even top 10 for you when you think about where you're putting your effort and your energy? Is it top five? Is it top three? Peter wants your pursuit of godliness to be on the forefront of your mind every moment of the day. This is not something that we compartmentalize of like, okay, I've got my godliness here. I've got my work here. I've got my chores around the house here. I got my working out here, my social media here. It's not divided up that way. That godliness should be in every area of your life on the forefront of your mind. Because if it's not, then you're going to stand before God fully exposed. You will be found by God, and that will not be a pleasant experience. And look, I've been praying about how to, how to really bring this point home. And man, I, I just don't know how to say this gently. So this is going to sound blunt, but this is coming from a place of love and care and concern as we think about the implications of this whole letter, that there are some of us who exert maybe 5% of the, 
of our energy and our effort and our time on a daily basis pursuing godliness. Maybe 5%. That it seems like everything else just gets your time, energy, and effort. That work gets it, chores around the house gets it, your kids get it, social media, shopping, all of these things get it. And your pursuit of godliness gets choked out. And you think about that and it's like, okay, if that's the reality, here's the dangerous reality of that is that for a lot of us, you're morally okay. For a lot of us, you're avoiding some of the, the big sins. And that can kind of lull you to sleep spiritually where you think to yourself, well, I'm not as bad as this person. I'm avoiding the list of bad sins over here. So yeah, I should exert more energy and effort, but I'm doing okay. And so you find yourself spiritually complacent forgetting the reality that spiritually speaking, we are at war. We are in a war every day. And for some of us, we've lost our hunger and our neediness for God. And we kind of chalk it up to, well, I'm, I'm busy. I'm in a busy season of life. Or, you know, I'm doing fine spiritually. I'm not where I should be, but I'm doing okay. And we just settle for spiritual complacency, mediocrity, when the call here is to be diligent, make every effort, not some effort, not the type of effort where you'll pursue it when you feel like it or when you're less busy or when the season of life is better for you. No, make every effort, meaning you should wake up every morning and the number one thought, the number one priority is to pursue godliness. Should wake up crying out to the Lord saying, give me more of Jesus today. Let me hunger for your word today. God, empower me to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. That should be our posture every single day. And that mentality for some of us is so foreign. It's so rare. For some of us, man, we're lucky just to shoot up a 20-second prayer before dinner and calling it a day spiritually. And the scary reality, scary, terrifying reality is that Satan has you right where he wants you, just spiritually sleepwalking, waiting for a perfectly timed temptation for you to, to walk into and to make a mess of your life. And tragically, for some of us, you will walk into that temptation because your number one priority is not godliness. Your number one priority is the kingdom of self. How do I advance myself, protect myself? How do I experience comfort and control and accomplishment and, and, and advance my own image? There's a temptation coming your way that will cause you to lose your own stability. Someone else put it, sin is a combination of three things. Sin is a combination of undetected weakness, an unexpected opportunity, and an unprotected life. Sin is a combination of undetected weakness, an unexpected opportunity, and an unprotected life. In other words, when godliness is not your number one priority, you will fall into sin. And look, I don't want that for you. I don't want that at all for you. That's why I'm pressing here. 
Like, I want you to experience the joy of walking on the path of righteousness. I want you to experience the, the satisfaction, the soul satisfaction of exerting every effort towards looking more and more like Jesus. That is the way of life. So praying, even on the middle of July, praying on a sermon like today, that some of us make the life-changing decision to say, I'm done being complacent. I'm done with this half-effort nonsense of spiritually having one foot here and one foot over there. I'm praying that some of you say, I'm going all in. I'm making every effort, every single day, my number one priority is to look more and more like Jesus. It doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter what happens, but I'm gonna make every effort and to be diligent at all costs to look more like Christ. That's my prayer. That's my hope for us today. And not, not because your pastor's up here making a, you know, causing a fit about this, but because you realize that Jesus is too good not to. That's why. And honestly, that's the only reason that will instill life change and transforma transformation is because you understand Jesus is too good to ignore on a daily basis. You're not gonna change because I'm up here you know, calling you to this, but I want you to understand the beauty and the satisfaction of Jesus and Jesus alone to be so convinced that you wake up every day and you say, I want more of him. That's what will change your life, to see Christ in all of his glory. And this is what Peter's calling us to, to be diligent in this process. But not only that, here's the second key reminder. Another command, Peter is calling us to trust in God's timing. Peter, again, wants us to consider God's patience in, in Jesus's return, it seems as if he's delaying intention. It seems like he's being slow. It seems like he's missing the, the timing here. Peter, again, is saying, no, 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 consider that salvation. C consider that actually a positive so that more and more people have an opportunity to be saved. And I spent last week unpacking this in verses 8 through 10, so I won't rehash everything, but I will say this, that I think so much of our spiritual complacency and our frustrations and our disappointments and our anger and our anxieties are caused by a failure to trust in God's timing. That's what I really think is behind verse 15. Peter says, look, you need to trust that God's timing is best. It seems like Jesus has missed it in his return. There's so much suffering, so much evil, so much heartache. Why isn't Jesus returning? What's going on here? Peter's like, no, no, no. God's timing is best. He knows more than you do. You need to trust in his timing. And yet that's easier said than done. Not only related to Jesus's return, but let's apply this to different areas of our life. Take suffering, for example. When you think about suffering, isn't one of the hardest aspects of suffering in a trial related to timing? When you think, man, when will this be over? We ask that when we go through suffering. Or we think about another aspect of, of, of timing related to suffering of, man, this timing, this season of my life could not be any worse to going through a trial. We say that from time to time. Or, or, or relate it to falling into sin. When you're being tempted and, and you fall into sin and you repent and you're, one of the questions that pop into your mind is, when 
will I be free of this? When will I stop doing A, B, and C? Or let's get a little bit more real. If you're married, don't you say this in your mind from time to time related to your spouse? Don't, don't look at your spouse right now. When they annoy you or when there's a frustration, doesn't the thought creep into your mind of when will they stop doing A, B, and C? When will they outgrow this? I'm gonna resist giving any illustrations here. My wife is in the room. <laughs> or parenting. When our children frustrate us or we say, man, when will they outgrow this? See, so much of our issues is related to timing. And Peter's applying it to Jesus' return, but man, it seems like the principle here is we so often fail to trust that God's timing is best. And he's saying, if you want to grow, to be diligent, to have the proper understanding of, of, of spiritual development, you have to come to the conclusion that God's timing is better than yours in every area of your life, that God sees it all. He sees the end from the beginning. He's infinite and we are finite and limited. So look, you're not gonna know all of the answers to the when questions, you're not. You're not gonna know all of the answers to even the why questions. But Peter's saying, you know the who and the who is God and he's infinite and his timing is better than yours. We're called to trust in that. So Peter reminds us that godliness has to be our top priority. We gotta trust in God's timing. Thirdly here though, it's calling us to examine everything through the scriptures. In verses 15 through 17, these are fascinating verses. Uh, he introduces the apostle Paul here, which is really funny when you consider their relationship. You know, one of the last uh, scenes that we have of Paul and Peter interacting in Acts or in Galatians is, uh, is Paul calling out Peter. Uh, Peter's hanging out with, with the Jews, excluding the Gentiles, and Paul calls him out there, goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Peter. It's so interesting. But now here, he's obviously complimenting Paul. He says some things about even his writings that are really helpful uh, in understanding the doctrine of Scripture. And, and I'm going to connect this to godliness in a moment with some application, but I just want to point out four things about these couple of verses that I think are too important to kind of skip over as it relates to the doctrine of Scripture. These are fascinating. The first one here is it seems as though that the, apo uh, uh, the apostolic writings were being added alongside the Old Testament canon as authoritative Scripture. Peter is building on the end of chapter 1 where he says that the writings of Scripture are not by the will of man, but they were carrying along by the Holy Spirit. Now he gets here at the end of verse 16, and he says that there are some who twist the meaning of these writings from Paul as they do with the other Scriptures. He puts it on the same level. And it's so interesting that Peter doesn't even unpack it. He doesn't even defend that claim. It's almost like he's just stating the opposite, the, the, uh, the obvious, as if everyone else kind of recognizes this reality that Paul's writings are on the same level as Scripture. And we know that Paul's writings, his letters were being circulated throughout all of these churches uh, in the first century and were considered Scripture. But that's so interesting. The second thing, though, is that Scripture can be difficult to understand. Look at verse 16. There are some things in them, referring to Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. How many of us read that and said, whew, I'm not the only one? Right? Peter just says what 
everyone's thinking that there are some things in this book that are really difficult to grasp. Now, while we believe in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture, it's just a fancy word that, set, that means that the Bible is clear. The Bible can be understood. Okay, we believe in that. At the same time, not everything is evenly clear, equally clear, right? The plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things, absolutely. But there are some things in this book that are so difficult to understand. We need further study. We need even um, scholarly attention, things that are complicated and, and complex in the word of God. And, and Peter is acknowledging that. So the implications is basically like you need to exert efforts into understanding the word. We'll get to that in a moment. Thirdly, though, another really, I think, fascinating thing here is that there's a right way to interpret Scripture and a wrong way to interpret Scripture. Reading these verses, I, I found what was so fascinating is what Peter does not say here. Peter does not say, hey, my buddy Paul, he's written some things, really hard to understand, but hey, you have your interpretation and I have mine, and who am I to say that I'm right and you're wrong? Like, as long as you're well-meaning, as long as you're sincere, you're not hurting anybody, you can have your, your interpretation, I can have mine, and we're good. He doesn't say that. He actually says at the end of verse 16 that some twist the meaning of Scripture to their own destruction because of their ignorance and because they're ignorant and unstable. See, there's a right way and a wrong way to interpret Scripture. And the reality is, is that some believers, unfortunately, are just intellectually lazy, or they cower at taking a stand on what the Bible says. They don't want to rock the boat too much, and so they jump into the land of, well, who really knows, anyways? This isn't a, a primary salvation issue. And so they, they resist drawing a conclusion about the Scripture. They say, well, Understanding the sovereignty of God is just too complex, so you have your meaning and I have mine. Or, you know, understanding the role of sexuality and homosexuality, how can we really understand what that means here in, in 2022? It, it's impossible to know for sure. Or, or the roles of men and women, it's too complex. You have your meaning and I have mine and it's all good. No, Peter is not afraid to say that the hard texts do not preclude there being a right interpretation and a wrong interpretation. This leads to the fourth one, though, is that some wrong interpretations can lead to destruction. He says this as much in, at the end of verse 16, because of these unstable and ignorant people who twist the meaning of Scripture into a wrong interpretation, it's to their own destruction. Now, not every wrong interpretation leads to eternal destruction. Some are just in theological error, but some clearly do. And so I want to be clear, while there's room for disagreements on some issues, and that's okay, just because someone is using the Bible to defend their view does not mean that it's a faithful interpretation. That you can interpret Scripture in a way that's twisted misguided and unfaithful. And it can lead not only to being wrong and in error, but Peter seems to suggest it can actually lead to your downfall. 
So let's zoom out for a moment. What's Peter saying to us as he's concluding this letter? He is elevating, once again, our view of Scripture. He's saying this book is different. This book is without error. This book is alive and it's active. It's written by the living God through human authorship. And remember chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter, right off the bat here, he says that through, uh, by God's divine power, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of him. How do we know God? Through the Bible. And so everything that he's saying, he's tying this all together. You want to grow in godliness? You want to understand every spiritual resource that is yours? It's through God, which we know him through this book. Look, over 2,500 times in the Bible, there is a reference to the fact that God's words are written in these pages. Over 2,500 times, pounding into us, this book is different. This book is different. This book is different. And it must be the ultimate spiritual authority for our doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Okay, why is this important? Why is Peter stressing the scripture in here? It's because of verse 17. He commands us to therefore, because of these things, take care. Some translations have be on guard. Be on guard against what? Two things. One, there are lawless people who will try to carry you away with the twisting of scripture. That's why you should have a high view of the word of God, right? There are false teachers. There are uh, teachers who have fallen into sin and there are immature believers. So be on guard. But secondly, Peter holds up the authority of scripture because the, at the end of verse 17, so that we will not lose our own stability, okay? We, we've seen this word a few times now. We saw this uh, in chapter one, verse 12. Peter says that he's giving us these reminders in order that we might become established in the truth, the same Greek word as stable or stability. Verse uh, 10 of chapter one, we practice those virtues listed in five through seven so that we will never fall or we will never lose our stability. Peter loves this word. Why? Well, this word, this is so interesting to me at least, this word, hopefully it's interesting to you, this word actually is the same Greek word that Jesus used in Luke 22 as he's talking to Peter. Now, I referenced this a few weeks ago, but it's, it's I think, worth mentioning again. A crazy scene. Peter is declaring, I'm never going to fall away from you. I'm going to die for you, all that stuff. And then Jesus predicts, hey, just so you know, Peter, um, I'm going to get arrested, and you're actually going to deny me three times. And, and that's before I'm, I'm crucified as well. But when you turn back, when you've repented, I want you to do one thing. I want you to give your life to this. This is your life mission, Peter. And he tells them, he tells him to go back and strengthen the brothers. Same Greek word as our word for stability or to stabilize. Peter loves this word because this is a directive from the Lord Jesus. This is what he's built his life around. This is why he's written this letter. This is why this has been an emphasis all throughout to be spiritually strengthened, stable, established, never falling. He's obeying the Lord Jesus. 
And the way that we do that, the way that we become stable believers is by pressing deeper into the word of God, by reading, by studying, and by immersing ourselves in it. Why? So we can have more head knowledge, so we can be smarter and throw around some facts with people. No, no, no. It's so that you might then examine everything through this book. If I have one prayer for you, it's that you would be a Berean Christian. Acts 17, 11. Paul compliments them, says these are noble believers. They are eager for the word. And he says they examine everything through the scriptures. And if you're doing that, that will lead you to being a stable Christian. There was a uh, recent study conducted by the Center of Bible Engagement that polled uh, over 40,000 people, ages 8 through 80. And they discovered something so fascinating. They discovered that when you're studying the Bible four times or more each week, that the following things happen. Loneliness drops by 30%. Anger issues drops by 32%. Bitterness in relationships with a spouse, parent, kids drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. And the big one here, feeling spiritually stagnant, complacent, drops by 60%. By studying the Bible four times or more each week. I don't know if you're going to get sick of hearing this from me, but I'm going to keep saying it. This is what we have. This is what we need in order to grow spiritually. Don't neglect it. This is a gift. And I know you got 47 on your bookshelf at home. Pick one out, dust it off, and immerse yourself in it. Peter wants us to be stable so that when storms come in your life, you're not blown over. When temptations come in, you don't give in. Well, the fourth one and final one, we'll close with this, is that grace and knowledge, these are the pathways to growth. Verse 18 is the most important verse in this letter. It's crazy. This is why we call the sermon series Grow in Grace. He's wanting us to grow both in grace and in knowledge. And it's interesting. Let's talk about grace for a moment. Grace, this is a, so important because we have all these commands to do, 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 exert effort, you know, be diligent, you know, add to your faith all these virtues. And yet Peter reminds us you can have that effort, you can have that supernatural power because of grace. We called it a grace-fueled effort, right? It's what Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may do what? Abound in every good work. See, this has been important for us even theologically. He has broadened our understanding of grace to be more than just something you say before you pray for dinner, right? I'm not sure exactly the origin of that, but to be more even than just a character trait of God. We say God is gracious, which is great. Or we say this is God's disposition towards sinners. He's gracious. He treats us better than what we deserve. Yes and amen. But Peter also says that grace is a, is a power, it's, it's a dynamic. It's not stagnant. 
it transforms us, it empowers us, it grows us, it changes us. And it's interesting here, there's no shortage that God has of grace. He's got an endless supply. And so it, it really begs the question, are you relying on this grace to strengthen you and to grow you? Or are you relying on other things? Peter's trying to remove any kind of legitimate excuse for spiritual complacency. This is how he ends it. He's like, look, you, you don't lack any spiritual resource and God will not withhold anything that you need to look more and more like Jesus pressed more deeply into grace. But then knowledge here, as he closes this, knowledge has been a huge theme in this letter. Uh, this word was repeated, knowledge, 16 times in three chapters. The, the most repeated word, uh, significant word in this letter. But remember, this knowledge is not just head knowledge or uh, knowledge about God. This is a knowledge of God, personal, intimate, and experiential. So at the end of the day, the Christian life really comes down to knowing God, not knowing about him, but knowing him. And so do you know him? The type of personal knowledge, is it increasing day by day? So as Peter kind of closes out this letter, he gives us these four reminders in order to help us grow in grace. It's been a fabulous study as we've walked, walked through 2 Peter. Pray that God has used it in your life to grow you, to give you a hunger, to look more and more like Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you and thank you. We, Lord, we are so privileged. We are so, Lord, we, we have so many blessings from you. Lord, it's just, it stuns us. Lord, we, we think about all the things that you've done in our lives, Lord, the, the physical blessings, but Lord, even the spiritual, ultimately, Lord, salvation in Jesus saved us from our sins. And yet, Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness through your divine power. God, thank you, Lord, for your commitment, Lord, in this process of us looking more and more like Jesus. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your generosity. God, we do, we want to hunger for you. So, Lord, continue to, to aid us, give us all the grace that we need, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.